Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm your host, Charles Hecker, and this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world. On January 6th, as a joint session of Congress met to certify Joe Biden's election victory, thousands of Trump supporters stormed the Capitol building. This unprecedented attack on the U.S. democratic process left five people dead, countless injured, and a dense fog of social and political unease over a country still very much in the throes of a deadly pandemic. Repudiation was swift from Democrats, tech titans, and other business leaders, as well as a growing number of senior members of Trump's own party. For companies operating in the United States, does the storm in the Capitol mark a point of no return in terms of the security environment within the country? Or will the incoming Biden administration bring some sort of normalcy that sees the stark polarization of the past four years fade away? Here to discuss this with me are two of my colleagues. Jonathan Wood is Control Risk's lead analyst for the United States and Canada, as well as the Deputy Global Research Director. He provides analysis and consultancy on political, operational security, and integrity risks to multinational organizations in the oil and gas, mining, insurance, financial services, retail construction, and technology sectors. Jonathan's subject matter expertise encompasses geopolitics, global governance, economic development, and transnational security issues. Jonathan, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Chuck. Great to be back. Sean Van Slyke is a principal within Control Risk's crisis and security consulting practice for North America. And he, like Jonathan, is based in Washington, D.C. Sean focuses on issues of workplace violence within the corporate environment, specializing in threat assessment, case management, and the creation of prevention and response programs. Sean, you're a newcomer to the podcast. Welcome. Hi, Chuck. Good to be with you. Jonathan, let's start the questioning with you. How unexpected was the unrest at the Capitol? And if it was to be expected, what were the warning signs? Well, I think that's been one of the main questions in the aftermath. The word unprecedented has been thrown around a lot. And as a student of American history, I think I can certainly say that this was an unprecedented event, not just in recent American history, but but indeed uh, in, in the entire course of U.S. history, the U.S. Capitol, the seat of the federal government, being essentially invaded by an unruly mob. Now, were there signs that something like this could happen? Absolutely. There were large-scale demonstrations in Washington, D.C. in the aftermath of the election, both in mid-November and then later uh, again in mid-December and leading up to the organization of this protest on the 6th of January. But I think that heading into that, that specific scenario was certainly considered unlikely for a few reasons. The first is that those previous protests had been largely nonviolent. They weren't really mainstream. They did involve clashes between you know, militant activists on both the right and the left, but they had been contained to the downtown core. They had been substantially effectively policed. And they didn't result in major threats to you know, business assets or, or even government buildings. And the second factor is that the U.S. Capitol complex has its own police force of over 1,500 officers. It's one of the most secure buildings in Washington in the post-9-11 era. And I think 
certainly as, a, as an observer and someone who's been to the Capitol many times, I would not have thought it so easy to access the structure. So, you know, in that sense, it was unexpected, not that there was a large scale demonstration, but that that demonstration made a concerted attempt to enter the U.S. Capitol building. A lot of people say the only reason why we didn't necessarily see this coming is that it was an inability to imagine the scope of the possible in this political climate, that it was really just a lack of imagination on everybody's part, that um, we didn't really include this within the realm of the possible. We are going to be understanding the ramifications of this election and our current political situation for a long time. But you know, this was an election where we had historic levels of turnout and where the amount of votes that President Trump captured, you know, over 74 million votes, was itself a huge number. And polling in the wake of the election indicated that a significant proportion of that electorate, 75% by some polls, considered that the election was rigged, unfair, illegitimate. And they're taking those beliefs into the Biden administration. So what we have, and this is not a new phenomenon, it's something that's been building for, for many years, but what we do have is a deeply polarized, deeply divided political climate. And one that I think what we're seeing in the threat environment is, is one that provides the platform or the foundation for a, not, not just political instability, but for an increasingly motivated and, and to some degree active militant and, and violent extremist threat landscape. And we certainly saw that in that capital siege. You mentioned both, you know, both the injuries and, and the fatalities that occurred in the, in the course of that incident. But you know, what, what it really indicated was that there were individuals and, and as well as some groups that were strongly motivated by concerns about the legitimacy of this election to carry out violent action. And I think that's going to be the concern going forward even if this particular unprecedented incident sort of remains very singular, these groups, these people haven't gone away. And there, there's been no indication over the last two weeks or so that they are accepting the election result as legitimate. Sean, before you joined Control Risks, you worked for the federal government and you worked in the behavioral analysis unit of the FBI, if I'm not mistaken. This was one of your office buildings, essentially, as a member of the government. When you saw this happen, what were some of your immediate thoughts about whether you saw this coming or whether this was predictable? And, 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 and as somebody who was part of the government, what did you think? You're right, Chuck. It was, it was very hard to watch and certainly did have a personal effect on me from an emotional standpoint. And it certainly was unexpected and extraordinary in the way that it was carried out. But I would certainly agree with, with Jonathan that the, the environment and climate are ripe for acts of domestic extremism and going forward into the near future, given the degree of political polarization and the corresponding level of anger in our country, thinking about the le threat landscape in light of the worsening economic conditions and ongoing pandemic restrictions. There's certainly a number of individuals who are upset and angry over the election process, election results, and, and really feeling marginalized and angry over the current situation in our country. I think all of these variables create a toxic environment that is very fertile for acts of domestic violence in the near future. So I was certainly surprised 
by the nature of the attack, but not surprised that we're starting to see a greater concern over increased acts of violent extremism occurring in the country. Let's focus on on that phrase for a second, the nature of the attack, because the story here actually evolved with time. And that is everyone's initial impression was that this was a group of real sort of B-team players who you know, burst into the Capitol violently, but once they were in there, looked initially as if they ran around taking selfies. You know, while we are dissecting this event, there's some indication that on these online forums where it was planned, or at least where these individuals and groups congregate, that they are also dissecting what happened and, and view that lack of a plan and that lack of a strategic objective for the U.S. Capitol siege as something to consider and for the next time, do it better? How could it be more professional, more impactful? I would also add that, you know, I believe it's becoming increasingly difficult for these groups of extremists to communicate and develop plans. They know that law enforcement and intelligence professionals have significant and enhanced capabilities in order to monitor those communications and disrupt that planning. So we may be more likely to see lone offender type attacks that are planned and orchestrated by a lone actor, especially in the current environment where the conditions tend to lead to conspiratorial thinking and a belief by certain individuals that their their way of life or even their life itself may be under threat. When I was at the FBI's Behavioral Analysis Unit, we actually did a study of these type of domestic lone offender type attacks and We looked at over 50 attacks in in a 40-year period, and we found some interesting commonalities uh, amongst the offenders who carried out these these lethal attacks on behalf of some sort of political cause or ideology. One of those being that the vast majority of them had some sort of identifiable personal grievance in addition to their ideology, which really drove and motivated their decision to carry out an attack. I think that's very relevant in today's environment where There are so many personal grievances and life stressors that are being dealt with by a number of individuals in in this pandemic environment. We also know looking at those those prior lone attacker, lone offender cases that the vast majority had a prior history of violence in their background as well. They had carried out acts of physical assaults, made violent threats, and used weapons in prior criminal activities. So these were the type of individuals who didn't just surface out of nowhere. They actually had prior interactions with law enforcement, and the vast majority of them had been arrested at least once as adults previously as well. And I think also noteworthy was that 80% of those attackers actually actually chose sites with no or minimal security to carry out their attacks. So that seemed to be a pretty significant aspect of the pre-planning and preparation process which often took weeks or months before an attack was actually carried out. You're seeing some of that today as well. I mean, in terms of the chatter on some of these forums, there are people saying all of the security is concentrated in Washington. It's far too much of a high-risk environment. Look for softer targets. There are some comments on there suggesting that politicians have homes and offices in their districts, You know, so not in Washington, not, not even in the state capital, but perhaps in smaller towns and cities across the U.S. that that might be more vulnerable. So there is some consideration, or there seems to be some consideration of exactly what what Sean mentions there. In Sean's remarks just a moment ago, don't you hear echoes of of some of the work that you've done on radicalization 
and on lone wolves and trends in right-wing extremism across the U.S., not just this year, but over the past several years. Absolutely. And I think we started several years ago drawing the kind of analog between what we were seeing in right-wing extremism or you know, other sort of ideological violent extremism and what many of us spent years working on in terms of Islamist extremism in both the U.S. and Western Europe as a result of the rise of Islamic State when you had an ideology that was motivating individual acts of violent action that were, were difficult to detect, predict in advance, that were occurring against soft targets, sometimes in out-of-the-way locations that happened to be you know, familiar or accessible many of which were carried out with relatively unsophisticated means, so they didn't require you know, particular training. And that cycle of radicalization, where, where many of those individuals had been consuming propaganda online, had maybe been recruited by more experienced or sophisticated extremists or militants, I think we're beginning to see that on, on the right-wing spectrum as well. And following the suspension or closure of kind of mainstream social media accounts, and even some fringe platforms, there are some in that right-wing extremist community. And you can think here of your, your white supremacist extremists, neo-Nazi groups, who are looking at this as a real moment of opportunity to recruit disaffected people who are now looking in this political environment for a home, for something that uh, re reflects their beliefs. And so there does seem to be, for those more sophisticated or, or at least more organized actors, an attempt to maybe exploit this particular moment and the chaos of this incident to pose a, a longer term and more durable threat. It's worth noting that we did have a direct lethal attack on U.S. lawmakers in recent history. It was only three and a half years ago that a lone offender with political motivations attacked and targeted a group of U.S. lawmakers in Alexandria, Virginia, that were at a practice session for the upcoming congressional baseball game for charity. There we had a 66-year-old offender from Illinois travel to the Washington, D.C. area, where he apparently lived for a period of weeks or months before the attack, ultimately choosing the baseball practice as an opportunity with minimal security to target lawmakers, and ultimately shooting congressman, capital police officer, congressional aide, and lobbyists using an M4 rifle at that practice session. So again, these types of attacks, even targeting law, U.S. lawmakers, conducted by lone offender violent extremists in the domestic setting are not unprecedented. Yeah, I think that's a great point as well, Sean, because that individual was also motivated by sort of left-wing political affinities. And it's just good to, it's a good reminder that this radicalization trend, I, I do think is something we're seeing across the political spectrum. We certainly saw that here over the summer in terms of some of the unrest I'm thinking of you know incidents both in Wisconsin and in Oregon where you had individuals participating in those protests with different you know kind of different political backgrounds, different ideological backgrounds, but you know ultimately carrying out lethal attacks motivated by by those beliefs. And I I think that is something that we do need to keep an eye on, especially as we continue in this very divided political environment. Yeah, and even if their political views or ideologies may differ. Sometimes there's there's commonalities in their backgrounds, which may be helpful in attempting to prevent or at least have a better idea of what the threat picture might be for these kind of attacks. 
I know in the Alexandria baseball practice attack, the 66-year-old offender had a long history of domestic violence that included use of a gun. It posted on social media about certain politicians being traitors and really traveled all the way from his home in Illinois to Washington, D.C. area before conducting the attack. So it was evident there was a significant amount of planning and preparation went in to carrying out an attack in a way that wouldn't be prevented by authorities. Guys, I want to explore the risk landscape, you know, the threat environment in a little bit more depth in a second. Before we do that, let's just linger for, for two seconds on politics and political stability. We're recording this literally hours before the inauguration of a new administration. And so I'm wondering, without putting language on trial too much, you know, was this an attempted coup? And, and should companies be worried about the stability of the federal government going forward? Well, th- this was absolutely an attack on the democratic process that we have here in the U.S. And bearing in mind, we have a very decentralized process with not just these federal elections, but state and local elections that number, you know, in the thousands of positions every cycle. And I think one question that this raises going forward in terms of the stability of the business environment is, you know, in the next election cycle, there are off-year elections this year in 2021. Of course, the the next major federal and many state elections will be in 2022. Is this something that we will continue to see repeated where there's not just a high degree of contestation and a lack of acceptance of election results, but, but maybe even attempts to sort of forcibly challenge those whether that's through nonviolent or violent action, will we see that going forward? And the second question is, you know, what does it mean when you do have a large chunk of the electorate and a large chunk of what is now the opposition political party that reject the legitimacy of the election? And how will that impact or, or probably impair the federal government in this case? But, you know, we've seen it at the state level in recent years as well. How will it impair their ability to respond to urgent crises. And that, of course, includes the continuing COVID-19 pandemic, but in the future could be a national security crisis or an economic or financial crisis. One thing that we, we have said for many years is that closely divided government tends to make it more difficult for the U.S. to resolve these types of problems, at least swiftly. And I think there will be a concern among many companies going forward that when the next crisis comes, the U.S. may lack that base of sort of consensus to reach a swift solution to that crisis. Jonathan, that's a great platform to move on to the next question from. And, and Sean, I want to direct this at you initially, at least. And, and you know, you mentioned in your previous remarks about studying decades worth of previous incidents. And so if you rely on all of that experience, do you think that the risk landscape has fundamentally changed in the U.S. more recently? And as a follow-up to that, as we change administrations, is it possible that things can go back to the way they were before? Chuck, I do believe the the threat landscape has fundamentally changed, and, and I don't think it's going to revert back anytime soon, even with the changeover of the administration. And I think that's not only due to the anger over the election results and election process, but also just the number of individuals out there who are feeling you know marginalized, 
isolated and really simultaneously dealing with an unprecedented level of stressors from worsening economic conditions and ongoing pandemic restrictions. At the same time, as Jonathan mentioned, having their primary digital platforms for political discourse cut off in certain cases. And with the ongoing protest environment over social justice and immigration issues, really creating an environment which is fertile for acts of domestic extremism, violence, that there's really going to be no resolution for in, in the near future. Jonathan, sometimes in the business of forecasting, the main thing that we have to do is follow trends and then also understand their cyclical nature. With what we're talking about today, is this just another bend in a cycle or is this genuinely a point of inflection and the beginning of something completely new? I think it's fair to say that there have been periods of significant turmoil in US politics and you know security as well in the past, but we are entering an era in which this recent consensus around US domestic policy and international engagement is really contested. And I think that's been a long time building, probably going back to the financial crisis more than 10 years ago. And it's going to take a long time to work out as well. So for those companies with long memories, you know, they might like to think back to the 60s and 70s, or you know, probably few few of our clients have this long memories, but the 20s and 30s for periods where we, we did have very big questions that were being determined in US politics and where you know ultimately those eras did wind up producing significant shifts in policy, in regulation, and in the business environment. We, we could well be on the cusp of something like that going forward. Sean, let's for a second drill down from the national level to the company level. What was interesting about the unfolding of the crisis in Washington was how many participants in the riot were ultimately given up by ex-wives, ex-husbands, by neighbors, by colleagues. And, and that points to something interesting for companies. What does a company do if it discovers that whether it's this incident or, or anything else, what do you do if you discover that one of the participants in, in an act like this is one of your employees? I think it's a very real concern in today's environment, Chuck. And you know, we have to recognize there's both the security and reputational impact risk of having an employee publicly identified as either being an extremist or an active participant in a protest which, which turns violent. We also have concurrent concerns over managing conflict within the workforce in this very politically polarized time. And we know there's contentious political debate going on in workplaces as well. This environment really creates potential for controversial or strong statements, protest activity, social media posts that may lead to certain employees being to some extent ostracized by coworkers. They may also feel as though their political viewpoints are being censored or ridiculed. They may feel isolated, may feel as though their legitimate political expression is being curtailed or cut off by by their employer. Ultimately, you know, this can cause a concern for conflict among the workforce, which we're already seeing from a number of our clients. It can pose a concern for escalating to violence or even more of a non-kinetic insider type threat from someone who feels disgruntled and ostracized by management. 
So I think it's really important that companies are very judicious in the way they enforce and interpret their code of conduct and social media policy and take a very tailored and careful approach as they attempt to discipline or counsel employees who may be involved in expressing some sort of political viewpoints that others may view as unpopular or extremist in nature. Sean, in a conversation that I had separately with a colleague about this incident, she remarked that in, in certain parts of the world, these sorts of things happen twice a day before breakfast. Broadly speaking, should we anticipate that these kinds of events may happen more often in the future? I'm not sure we should anticipate something as extraordinary as the invasion of the Capitol, Chuck, but certainly protest activity, controversial social media posts, conflict among the workforce over conflicting political views, all of those, I think, are going to become much more common going forward than they have been in the past. And I think we should expect that trend to continue, at least for the near future. Perhaps a last question for both of you. Going forward, should we anticipate that the targets of this activity will be primarily symbols of government? Or should companies be aware of the threat to them and their assets as well? At the moment, much of the rhetoric is obviously directed at governments, both government assets, individual politicians, even some of the more obscure government agencies that might be involved in specific policy decisions. But we have also seen sort of increasing commentary on private companies, on the structure of the economy, on, you know, especially going back to Sean's comments about sort of conspiratorial thinking on purported alliances or, you know, relationships between government and business that are at one level not new. We've certainly seen a lot of that type of rhetoric over the years. We at Control Risks typically cover that extensively around, at least in the past, annual events like the Davos, World Economic Forum in Davos. But but you're now seeing that from both the, the, the left, where it's been more traditional, and also from the right, which sort of perceives in some corners a nefarious alliance between the public and private sectors. And so over time, it seems like that could increase the exposure or at least the legitimacy of business as a target for some of these actors and groups, uh, even if in the immediate term, we expect most unrest activity and, and, and probably most incidents of political violence to target the government and, and perhaps you know related law enforcement and political assets rather than business assets. I think Jonathan makes a great point, and I would perhaps add that you know, I think companies also need to be concerned from the standpoint of the potential threat from their own workforce in terms of some sort of lethal act of workplace violence. We know that in the U.S., active shooter events have been very common over the last five to 10 years, and we know these are often carried out by individuals who have some sort of grievance with a current or former employer. And in today's environment, where we do have these differences over political viewpoints, we have the potential for individuals to feel isolated in the workplace or ostracized. It can, again, create an environment where we have to have concern about some sort of retaliation. And for a company, there can be no more significant security threat scenario than an active shooter event. 
especially given the current pandemic environment, all the additional stressors that the workforce is under. When we look at all these under the totality of circumstances, I think it does pose a significant security concern for companies. Sean, thank you very, very much for joining us today. It was a great pleasure having your insights on the podcast. Thank you, Chuck. And Jonathan, thanks for joining again. Look forward to talking to you in the very near future. Thanks. Thanks very much. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay updated with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. And don't forget to check out RiskMap 2021, which launched last week. RiskMap is our annual flagship forecast of political and security risk for the coming year, including our top five risks, key topics picked by our analysts, and a calendar of geopolitical events throughout the year. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping businesses build organizations that are secure, compliant, and resilient at controlrisks.com. Thank you, and bye for now.